Hello and welcome everyone. We appreciate you tuning in for today's virtual events. My name is Shannon and I'm part of our community and events team at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. And today I have the pleasure of introducing our esteemed panel who will be discussing the intersection of fertility law and family law. We're honored to have leading experts in this area, Shirley E. Levitson and Amrit Mahalter joining Russell for this discussion to share their knowledge and expertise. And before I get into our introductions, we'd like to hear from our audience as well and get to know you a bit better. So we'll start with our first poll. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So there is uh, a few options here. If there's one on there that you don't see and you can submit other and you can put that into the Q&A. So please take a few moments to answer that. And while you do, I will uh, just take a few moments to let you know what's on the agenda today. So today our panelists will be discussing commonly used terms in fertility, impact of the fertility journey on couples, main challenges of infertil infertility, coping with diagnostic procedures and treatment interventions, how fertility may impact the separation of the divorce process, Federal Assisted Human Reproduction Act, AHRA, and AHRA Regulation 8 Consent to Use of OVA, Sperm, Embryos, and Related Case Law, the Children's Law Reform Act, the CLRA Case Law Impact on Sperm Donation and Child Support, and lastly, we have the General Application Overlap with Family Law. We'll also as always, uh, reserve some time for Q&A uh, and answer our panelists will be answering audience questions throughout the presentation. You'll notice the chat has been disabled and this is just to ensure that everyone's or all of our audience members remain anonymous to one another. However, you can submit those, as I mentioned, through the Q&A as well and our speakers will do their best to answer as many questions as time allows. So now it's my pleasure to take a few moments to share some background on our panel. So first we have Shirley Eve Levitin, and Shirley has been practicing law in Toronto since 1988 and is one of the few lawyers in Ontario who has considerable experience in both family law and fertility law. With her valued expertise in these two areas, she was asked to assist with reviewing and revising Bill 28, which amends Ontario's Children Law Act reform in the context of family law. Shirley's practice focus is out-of-court settlement, whether by traditional negotiations, collaborative law, or mediated settlement. In the context of fertility law, Shirley has worked with intended parents, egg sperm, embryo donors, surrogates, clinics, and hospitals for over 25 years. She is also a published author and adjunct professor teaching the first fertility law course at Queen's University. Thanks for being with us, Shirley. Thank you. Next, we have Amrit who holds a Master of Social Work degree from the University of Toronto and has been practicing social work for over 30 years as a registered social worker specializing in fertility and third-party reproduction, healthcare, trauma, grief, and loss. She also is an accredited family mediator with the Ontario Association for Family Mediation and is a collaborative practice family professional. Amrit is a board member with Collaborative Divorce Toronto and Collaborative Practice Hamilton Halton. She is co-chair of the Counseling Special Interest Group at the Canadian Fertility Andrology Society. And in addition, she provides individual and couple counseling in her private practice and is the president of Invicta Counseling. Appreciate you being here as well. All right, and last but not least, we have Russell Alexander. Russell is the founder and senior partner at our firm. With 25 years of experience, he uses his knowledge and expertise to serve his clients in all aspects of family law and helps them cope with the difficulties of separation and divorce and other family law matters 
while helping them move through and supporting them through the transition of divorce. And Russell has written four books on separation and divorce and is a fully trained collaborative practice lawyer. He speaks at conferences on collaborative practice, marketing, technology, and the law. And on that note, I will now let you take it away, Russ. Thank you for those kind words, Shannon. Um, let's see our poll results. So let's see who do we have. 61% uh, family lawyer, 2% uh, infertility law, lawyer from a different area, 15%, professional in another field, and um, helping a family member. We have seven law students. I love having students on. Uh, thank you for joining us. Okay, commonly used terms in fertility law. Amrit, what do we need to know here? Sure. Thanks so much, uh, Russell and Shannon, for having us here today. It's really quite exciting. So some of the commonly used terms, assisted human reproduction, AHR. Um, in, in my work, when I'm working with individuals and couples who are proceeding with the fertility journey, they may be going through procedures <laughs> such as IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. It's a procedure by which sperm is injected directly into a woman's uterus, usually in combination with some medications to stimulate the egg production and uh, by the ovaries. Uh, another procedure that uh, uh, individuals or couples may go through is IVF, which is in, in, vitro, in vitro fertilization procedure, where there's the extraction of eggs from a woman's body, fertilizing them in a lab uh, with sperm and transferring the embryos to her uterus. Uh, intended parents, IP, often known as IPs, may be referred to throughout this presentation. Uh, when we use the word gametes, what we're referring to are either sperm or ova. Um, we have to note that much of the work that I do, I work with intended parents that are seeking third-party reproduction and are proceeding with either donated eggs or donated sperm or donated embryos. Um, when it's a donated embryo, it may be using the gametes of a donor, and a donor would be referred to as someone who is uh, someone who is uh, fertile with, and they're using their sperm or you're using their eggs in order to uh, produce the embryos. So those are some of the terms that I think may be very important uh, for today's discussion, and there certainly will be others that are going to be raised later uh, in Shirley's presentation. Excellent. So next, we're going to talk about the impact of fertility journey on couples. So this obviously can be quite stressful, I would imagine, and I guess expensive. Absolutely. I mean, we know that statistics here, we, uh, the fertility journey impacts one in six couples. So it's really impactful and or one in six Canadians, I should say. And so we have to be aware of of that impact on a daily life, right? Because it's going to it's going to have impact on their finances, how they are able to uh, attend work with taking time off in order to go to clinic appointments, their relationship, their emotions, their mood. Um, much of the work that I do is around the implications surrounding the decisions about moving forward with third-party reproduction, um, having to decide on, on whether they're proceeding with a surrogate or if they're having to... Um, build their family with the assistance of donated sperm or donated eggs or donated embryos. And so a lot of the counseling that I do are, are um, really it's like informed consent and it's considered best practice when you're working with a fertility clinic that you have the opportunity to work with uh, a counselor to talk about some of these issues. Um, so uh, a lot of challenges that, uh, that people go through when they're dealing with sur um, 
fertility is grief and loss right not having the genetic connection with the child um, and there may be re recurrent pregnancy losses or they may be dealing with um, struggles in their relationship as a result of this there are times where there's guilt there may be blame um, a lot of sadness anxiety or depression uh, much of the journey is is fraught with uh, uncertainty and it's quite it's been described as a roller coaster uh, because there's so many ups and downs and there's a lot of um, unknowns and trial and error procedures that they're going through. Um, it can it can produce a lot of stress. There, there are certainly procedures that people are going through that are, that are very frightening and scary and painful and may impact a mood and their ability to, to sleep, um, relate to others socially, and there may be with withdrawal from some of those activities, stressors culturally, um, from family members or friends, a lot of people asking very personal intrusive questions. It can be a very uh, challenging time and uh, not all partners will see, view it in the same way or it may not have the same impact on both, on both partners. And there are times where one person wishes to proceed and continue and where the, where the other partner is not wishing to. So it can create a little bit of a, um, conflict. Do you coach couples in terms of how to present to the community or their family or friends? I imagine one one person may want to tell the world and the other one may want to wait to make sure uh, they're successful. Yes, no, absolutely. It's a big part of the discussion that I have, even just around social media usage. Um, you know, many people get very excited about the journey that they're going through, not realizing that it may it may not be successful the first time that they go through a right. procedure. And so with posting it, it means that lots of people are aware and may ask questions about, well, so where are you at in your journey? And it may produce a lot of stress and and uh, discomfort. And so or even if they're proceeding with third party reproduction and they're going forward with a donor, that they're disclosing this information on a public forum and they're disclosing information about their offspring that their offspring may not want out there. And so there are lots of, there are lots of considerations in the work that I do with individuals or couples who are going through this journey. I imagine if they're unsuccessful and then people keep asking, then yet they relive that trauma, right? All over again. It, it can it can be very challenging, and, and I think that at times people withdraw from those connections because they don't maybe know how to respond, and there may be a lot of grief uh, with that. Um, so others do seek out the support and put it online and join online forums because they need the connection with others who understand what they're going through, and it can be very greatly helpful. So I think it is individually dependent, um, and it really depends on on their need of what they're going through through this these procedures all right great stuff so let's talk next about main challenges that you're seeing in fertility what should couples and lawyers be thinking about when um, considering the challenges because i imagine fertility lawyers are going to have to advise their clients right give them uh, some advice in terms of the challenges they're going to be facing but what's your experience been like what would be your advice and your tips yeah, well, some of, some of the main challenges that people are going through are this, the stresses surrounding uh, disclosure. Like, what are they going to share with uh, friends, coworkers, people that are involved in their lives that, that may be a stressor? Uh, the financial impact that this has had, you know, with, with the enormous cost, and some employers do offer benefits for fertility, and others do not. But it may come up as a 
as a real sore spot for a lot of couples as they're going through this as to determine how far are they going to to go through this process and when to say when and so that may be a challenge that uh that a lot of people face when one person wishes to continue with the journey and the other one's ready to stop um just on so, that note so and i don't mm -hmm. know if you can answer this question but sure. in terms of cost can you give us a ballpark or a range what should people expect um I, you know, I know people have yeah. been in the process for a few years and some people are successful right away. So is there a range right. see in terms of costs? So it's difficult to say because it really depends on what procedures they're going through and whether they're using their own gametes. If they're using their own gametes, it, might, it may be uh, much less than if they were using donor <laughs> eggs or donor sperm or donated embryos or whether they were going through a surrogacy journey. So it's so it really, honestly, it's a wide range. And there are some funded cycles in Ontario. There are um, there are some criteria in order to receive that. So but, 10, so 100,000? You, Shirley, how you help me here? It's it's a it's a tricky one. It's okay. a tricky one. So each so if someone was going through and donor conception, it might be fifteen to thirty thousand, depending on what it is that they're going through and the number, um, the number of straws that they're let's say getting if they're going through an egg donation or how many vials they're getting if they're going with sperm. So really, it, it's an impossible it's impossible to put like a maximum uh, amount on there, but it is a very expensive, it is a very expensive journey for sure. You, you mentioned a funded session. So the, I assume the Ontario government helped with the funding for some of this. Is that what that implies? Potentially, potentially there could be a funded cycles available. Absolutely. That's but there, through but OHIP or somewhere else? Through OHIP. Okay. It's through OHIP. Okay. Sorry to cut you off. It's just, it's all new. Probably if it's new to me, probably my audience too, most of my audience. All right. So what other challenges do you, should couples be considering? Uh, so, I mean, some people have phobias around even going through any kind of medical intervention. So there's needle phobias. Um, there may be reactions to medications, which could cause mood swings. Um, there could be just the timing of procedures and not being able to proceed with the things that they want to do in their lives. You know, people don't take their trips because they're afraid of conceiving if they're going somewhere where it could be, there could be Zika virus. And so they're afraid right. to, to go to those destinations. They may uh, have to mm, not go for a promotion because they were concerned about being able to show up and go for clinic appointments because their current role offers flexibility. Whereas if they took a senior role, they may not be able to. So those career decisions may be impacted as well. Um, how they connect with others, those supports that may be in their lives. Are they withdrawing? Are they cocooning? Are they not able to, to show up at the baby showers? Uh, are they uh, having difficulty attending company events where there may be children present like during the holidays, uh, you know, needing to take time off? So there are many people that even consider international treatments as well and go out of country in order to in order to go through these because they're trying to save on costs. So it has a tremendous impact on the day-to-day -day functioning. And if anyone has issues with mental health prior to that, it may be exacerbated. Um, the, the anxiety might be a lot higher or the depression that they're going through could be a lot higher. I do wanna emphasize through this, this talk that not everyone that goes through the fertility journey um, necessarily goes through a separation. I just wanna be really clear on that. We're just we're just talking about the intersection of when, when people right. who are going through the separation process and they're experiencing this. 
how how things may show up. Um, so I really wanted to make that point. And and the other piece is that the uh, when you're going through the fertility journey, it it it's just it puts your whole life on par pause. And many people that I'm working with are eating, sleeping, breathing, fertility. Everything is revolving around that. And so it it's just it just stops things as they know it for that time being as they're going through it. And with the uncertainty, uh, I'll give you the example. If if someone's proceeding high uh, proceeding with higher education and they know if they put in six years, they're going to get their their doctorate or whatever, they they know that at the end of it, they're going to they're going to get their credentials. But with fertility journey, you may go into it and you're putting lots of money into it and lots of energy into it and a lot of effort into it, but you may not get the result that you're looking for. Mm. And so that disappointment can really weigh on an individual or a couple as they're going through it, right? It's it it really does affect affect their day-to-day functioning. Sleep may be impacted, their ability to uh problem solve and be critical. Like there, there's no um Sometimes like with the negative thoughts that come up quite frequently for people, it can be over, it can be overwhelming. Yeah. Right. So support is definitely required during this time. All right. So that kind of leads into our next topic, coping with diagnostic procedures and treatment interventions. Uh, right. And, and best practices and experience can you share with our audience? Yeah. So what I can share is like often when people are going through the IVF, procedures or they're going uh, and they're going forward with the donated gametes. Uh, we often talk about genetic testing that's needing needed to be done to ensure that you're not a carrier for anything that the donor is also a carrier for. And so with that information, sometimes you get more information than you bargained for. Sometimes the information that you get through the genetic counseling may impact other family members as well. And there needs to be a sharing and there's a sense of responsibility. So I've often worked with uh, individuals or couples that are conflicted about going forward and getting that information because of what it might mean. Uh, there are also times where, where some of these procedures that uh, you're going through are painful, right? They're invasive, uh, they're, they're uncomfortable, and it, even taking the medications that are needed may cause like mood swings and there may be uh, side effects as a result of that or timing needs to be really looked at about um, functioning within the workplace because they need to get out at a, at a particular time so they can go and do an injection. And it, perhaps it's even a challenge because you don't even do the injections yourself. You usually have a partner help you with it, but now you're in the workplace and now you're being forced to go back into work and not working virtually anymore. And that's a real, that's a real struggle. Uh, the timing of the diagnostic procedures as well, you don't have control over it. It depends on when the clinic has availability and, and your, your cycle. And so there are lots of different aspects of it and, and there could be delays as a result. And so that can be very hard, very, very hard on uh, the individuals. Okay, let's run a poll question here. And then we've got some questions coming in from our audience. Thank you, everybody, for sure. sending your questions. We're going to try to get to as many as we can. So next poll is the process covered by federal, provincial legislation, both or neither. We'll give everybody a minute to uh, answer that. But let's go to our audience questions. So there's, what about the impact on uh, a single woman going through the process? Is that different than a couple? I I think I think that with anyone going through the process, we have to look at the individual and and what some of the needs are. I think that uh, a solo a solo woman going through the journey, um, having good supports, 
would be just as important to a couple going through the journey as well. But I think uh, disclosure to the child and the information when it's provided, maybe a consideration, you know, what are some of the um, cultural dynamics? Or is it going to be a challenge to share this information with the, with the rest of the family or their network? Are they able to find a donor of their of their choice? Sometimes finding a donor that's of, of the same ethnic background, if that's the preference, may be challenging. It's not always available. And there, for some, uh, struggle with, you know, what is, how is this going to be, how is this going to be viewed? And for others, it's very empowering to be able to move forward and proceed with your family building on your own. And another question that came in from our audience. Mm -hmm. Thank you. This one, Shirley, maybe I'll throw this at you. We're talking about the expense of the procedure, but what about the expense for lawyers and fertility contracts or agreements? What should people be expecting when they go see a lawyer to help them through this process? So um, it depends on the process that they're looking for help with. So, you know, if they're looking to do a donor contract, um, it could be anywhere from, um, you know, 1500 for the intended parents lawyer and then for ILA for the donor, anywhere from 750 to 1000 I've seen. If they're doing a surrogacy contract for the intended parents, um, the standard is sort of around 3500 That that could be plus or minus, depending on the lawyer. And then for independent legal advice for the surrogate, it's about 2,500. Again, plus or minus, depending on the surrogate. Um, there's also then after the birth parentage uh, requirements, and that depends entirely on the province the child is born in. Parentage is legislated provincially. In Ontario, um, for the most part, provided there are certain criteria that are met, and I can get into that later when I discuss the CLRA. Right, just, uh, just one sec, just one sec, because we're going to get our poll results. Just give me one minute. Oh, oh, oh. Two more quick audience comments. Um, one person said IV, IVF round with donor sperm can be 20 to 30 per round. And then the other question that came in, what is the likelihood of separation during the fertility process? That's interesting. So. We get we get a hundred people go through the process. How many of them separate? Any stats or even your own experience and what the numbers might be? Amrit, you want to go first? So you know, I I don't have statistics to be able to to share with that. Right. What I can I, what I can say to that is that it it varies. I mean, we know that. Uh, many couples go through separation and divorce and we know that the statistics for fertility infertility issues are one in six Canadians are impacted so I mean it, it's ent entirely possible that people may be going through difficult circumstances uh, through the fertility journey when they're considering separating because it, it is a high stress period it can be very very difficult but at the same time I've seen a lot of couples couples come together and they're much stronger in the relationship because they're they're supporting one another and they're leaning into one another. So uh, it's difficult to say what the statistics are on that. But I think that awareness, I think it's very important for us to, when we're doing intakes, let's say as a family professional, to understand what they may have gone through with their, uh, even their birth story. Like what have they gone through and how is that impacting what we're dealing with today? Because it may impact, you know, like how they want to set out parenting time, for example. Right, if they're genetically connected or not. One in six. I didn't think it's going to be that high. I'm going to get to you in just one minute, Shirley. Full results, 21% federal, 34% uh, provincial, 32% said both. And our favorite answer in all our polls are neither or it depends. So 
two things, Shirley. I, I just want to get your take on the uh, likelihood of divorce for people going through the process or what your experience has been. And then secondly, what you think the answer to our poll question is. Okay. Um, so in terms of, I agree 100% with what Amrit said. Um, you know, there's a statistic for a couple separating in Canada. It's less than the states. It's somewhere between a third and a half. Um, that would include common law. Um, and then in terms of the fertility journey, of course, it adds considerable stress to, to the couple, uh, emotional, financial, temporal. But in some cases, as, as again, Amber rightly points out, it, it could bring them much closer together. Um, I have had situations where um, it was an unsuccessful fertility treatment and the couple broke up. Would they have broken up anyway? It's hard to know. I've had situations where the fertility journey was successful and they broke up. Right. So it, it, you know, there's, it's really, really hard to say because there's so many other things at play. Um, one situation where they broke up, I, I may have described it briefly to you before. It was unbelievable. Uh, God knows what they paid on legal fees altogether. But um, one party came to me um, to do um, a marriage contract. And then seven and a half years later, that same party came back to me because the couple was separating. What I didn't know is the entire marriage was focused on trying to create a family. Um, and the female party um, was not in a position, unfortunately, physically to either uh, provide her ova or carry. So the couple needed both an ova donor and a surrogate. They broke up when the surrogate was about five months pregnant. I think I think the uh, the wife there just felt uh, completely deflated as a human being and a failure. It was very, very poignant. And um, the baby is then born. They had to amend the surrogacy agreement. It was a whole big mess. And, and uh, husband takes the baby home only to find out two weeks later from a DNA test that he's not the father. In fact, it was the surrogate's biological child. So that was quite shocking. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so the baby goes back to the surrogate and, you know, all that. Imagine from day one to finding that out. So there is a couple who, you know, who broke up um, because of all the stress and the pressure. Um, I've had uh, other, I've had a couple of common law partners who actually got married after a failed, after a failed fertility treatment, which I thought was very interesting because as Amrit, you know, pointed out, they, they felt that they had been through this mm -hmm. really emotional, tumultuous time. And in order to almost, I don't want to say celebrate that it wasn't successful, but I think celebrate the fact that they felt closer, they actually did in their mind, it was symbolic, but they, they took the legal step of actually marrying. So that was interesting. And another couple- um, to, to some uh, you there. Federal, provincial, which, uh, both, it's both. both, it's both, it's both. And Federal Assisted Human Reproduction Act. What do we need to know? Right. About this? Is this our main oh. legislation governing the process? It is, it, it okay, so so the feds um, wanted to, to deal with that because they wanted to criminalize the payment of a fee to a surrogate um, and a donor. So criminal law is in the purview of the constitutionally of the federal government. So they took it over. Um, so the the provision that states it's uh, punishable by up to half a million dollar fine and or 10 years in prison to pay a surrogate or a donor is in the federal legislation. Um, the 
the provisions that deal with parentage, uh, who is a parent and who is not a parent is dealt with in the provincial statute in the CLRA. So the, the, both of them combined um, create the legal regime for surrogacy and, and donation in our, in our province and in our country. The federal act came into uh, pass in uh, 2004 based on research done last century in the late 80s. So um, those of us who practice in this area feel it's quite outdated um, and doesn't really reflect the reality of what's going on. Right, and, and it's different than the American experience, obviously. Um, I would in, in, in the States, it's, it, it's, it's uh, legislated state by state. There's no federal, there's no federal legislation there. So you pick, there, and, it's different. pick and choose your jurisdiction down there, I suppose. Uh, well, yes. It also depends on how much money you have. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's see what our audience is thinking. This has been a great presentation so far. Thank you both. If a couple separates, who gets ownership of the embryo and or the embryos treated, are they treated as property? So we're going to get to this um, question in a moment, but let's go back to our audience and uh, see what we got. So here's the question. I guess maybe we'll wait for this one because we're going to talk about consent in in a moment. But let's talk about um, donors. Do donors have any rights to see, access, or parent a child? Sure. No, no, they do not have any legal right. So Section Five of the CLRA states a person who donates using assisted reproduction is not a parent. Full stop. Okay. However, um, because our country criminalizes uh, uh, paying a fee to a donor um, and they assume, therefore they, they presume you've got a friend or a relative who's gonna donate, uh, which of course isn't the case. Um, th that has left many people actually using, uh, particularly with sperm, um, friends or relatives. Uh, particularly, I would say in the LGBT community, uh, it's been my experience anyway, and it may change from lawyer to lawyer, that it's not uncommon with same-sex female couples for um, the brother of the, or cousin of the non-bio uh, mom to donate um, or for another gay man. Um, and in those situations, obviously there, there is a relationship between the donor and the child. But what many people don't understand is if that relationship reaches a level of settled intention to parent, then the status of the person who donated can morph from donor to, to intended parent. And then you open up a whole can of worms with respect to um, parenting rights and support obligations. And, and there, are actually, there are cases that deal with that. Most of them get settled, but... Um, there's a couple of cases I'll talk about uh, a little later that go to that end up in court. All right. Let's see what our audience is thinking. Let's go to our poll results. Um, and we've got another comment that came in about this poll. I'll get to in a minute. So wife gets an 11%, husband 2%, divided equally 43%. One spouse pays the other one out 14%. Neither of them gets them. Before I go to you, Shirley, uh, one of our audience thinks this is double-barreled questions. The polls, the answers don't work for them, and the correct answer in that person's opinion is not there. So 
having set it up, what do you think the correct answer is? Uh, okay, so I think the other person may have a point. Um, they are not treated as property. That's number one. In, and in fact, technically, no one does get ownership of them because they are not property. It's a consent-based regime that's set out in uh, Regulation 8 of uh, 8.3 of the Assisted Human Reproduction. So it's, so it's almost by design because our next topic is Regulation 8. So let's there you go. It's perfect. You see, Please you wait. see, Russell, you set it up perfectly. What a genius. Okay. I apologize to the audience. The, the question, the answers could have been better. I take ownership of that. But let's talk about Section 8. Okay. Isn't sperm considered property? It depends on the context. That's another case. That's out in BC. Okay. So, um, and, and, and there are some in Ontario too, to that anonymous attendee. Um, okay. So regulation eight. Regulation 8 came to be in 2007, and it um, relates to Section 8 of the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, which deals with consent to use of ova, sperm, and embryos. So there are uh, very quickly three important cases to know about that regulation, which does not on its face read with any clarity whatsoever. So thank you to uh, the courts for, for clarifying. Um, Regulation 8.1 deals with consent to use of uh, sperm or ova, and that case is uh, from out from BC. I'm just going to check. I think it was uh, 2016. Apologies. Just checking my notes here, people. Nope, uh, got a tough yeah. crowd. You better get it right. Oh, no, I know. Okay. <laughs> WKL, Genesis Fertility Center. I should have known that. 2016 out of BC. So what happened was... Um, uh, the, the husband and a couple was very sick um, and in contemplation of death, he, he provided his sperm to a clinic to freeze um, for use for the wife for future, uh, you know, obviously child creation. And he did die. And then the wife wanted to use the sperm and the clinic said, uh, well, we never got his consent in writing because the regulation provides that you must give your consent in writing. And the clinic didn't uh, oppose them, but they didn't, they wanted to cover their butts. And so they said, go get a court order. And so the wife went and she did get a court order and the court found that based on all the evidence before it, um, his action was tantamount to providing the consent required under the regulation and they allowed her to use it. So that was, that was a happy ending. The court also found in that specific context, and that's very important, major, major, you know, like underlining, highlighting, the sperm was property. And so she would have received it anyway as part of his estate, but it was in that context. Um, it's not necessarily in every context, but it was in that context. So yes to this anonymous person number two who asked that, made that comment earlier. Um, there's another case also out of BC, uh, 2019 LD versus DT estate. And that has to do with section 8.2 of the regulation, which provides that no person shall remove reproductive material from a donor's body after the donor's death for the purpose of creating an embryo without the donor providing the written consent, obviously before death. Um, so what happened there is that the husband reached an un had an experience an untimely death and they had one child and the wife wanted to have his sperm extracted 
and used to create more children. And the court said, um, I'm sorry, no, we don't have his consent. And she tried everything. She said, well, um, but, but his sperm is property because the court did allow on an interim motion for his sperm to be extracted posthumously pending their decision. So they said, well, no, it, it's only there on ice because we allowed that on an interim motion. And we can't really, this isn't the same as the Genesis fertility case. Um, in that case, he had provided sperm before he died and all the action around was uh, very clear screamed that he consented to the use of his sperm. In this case, there was nothing like that. He, he got hit by a truck or something. I mean, I don't know, something like that, untimely death. And the court felt if they allowed it in that situation, it would open up the door to anybody who, who died unexpectedly to have their gamete extracted post-death. And they felt that this was absolutely mm -hmm. not the intent at all of the legislature. Um, there's more to it than that, but I'll go on to the really exciting case in Ontario, yay, of- um, I was gonna SA say, why, why is BC the hotbed of all the cases? What's going well, on? Well, no, no, just those cases, but okay. the really good one is Ontario, okay? okay. so we let's get to the good so, stuff. Absolutely, <laughs> so SH and DH 2018, a decision of Justice Del Freight. Now in this case, the couple, um, they were a couple, they were married when this happened, they, they got sperm and ova, frozen sperm and ova from the States. All right, they bought them separately for a total um, of about 11,500 USD. That's what it cost them to create embryos, which in fact were created up at a clinic in Canada. So we have two clinics involved here, one in the States and one in Canada. They had four embryos, they implanted two into the wife. As a result of that, they had a healthy child, they broke up very, very shortly after, and then down the road, the ex-wife wants to use the um, remaining uh, embryo because one of the four, so the implanted two, there were two left. One of the two left was no good anymore. She wanted to use the fourth one to create another child. Um, so keep in mind, again, both the uh, egg and sperm were donated there. And Justice Del Freight looked at the consents with both clinics, one of the consents said um, it's to be treated as property and therefore it's up to the court to decide. And the other consent with the clinic said, if they break up, it goes to the wife. So he applied property law and contract law. And he said, yes, the wife can have this embryo because it cost 11,005 USD to create the four embryos. Wife, you have to pay a husband for the basically the cost of one embryo um, and you get the embryo. And the husband, at this point, they were divorced, I believe, appealed. And the Court of Appeal, um, I think, great gave a wonderful decision. They really helped translate this regulation into English that was comprehensible. So under A3 of that regulation, no person shall make use of an in vitro embryo for any purpose unless the donor has given written consent in accordance with the regs to its use. So that's that's the reading of the act, all right? And then the reg, um, again, reads like a whole alien language and the court dissected it and said, okay, first of all, donor refers to both people in the couple. If the people were in a couple, common law or married, when the embryo was created, regardless of the status of their relationship at the time of use of the embryo, 
if they have the same genetic connection to the embryo, the consent of both is required. So if they each provided sperm and ova, or in this case, neither provided sperm and ova, both their consent is required. So it isn't about who gets ownership. And they very clearly, the court very clearly stated, this is not contract law or property law. This is regulation based. If they uh, break up and one of them only has a genetic connection. So let's say, um, you know, hetero couple, donor egg, his sperm created when they're married or living for a common law, they break up. Only his consent is required because he is the only person who had a genetic connection to the embryo. And it would be the same if they use donor sperm and her ova. Um, only, only, the, only the woman's consent would be required. So I, I hope that's clear. Same genetic connection, consent of both required, regardless of the status uh, at the time the embryo was used, Excellent. if they were a couple when it was created. Great job explaining that, that case. That's really helpful. All right, let's go to our audience, see what our audience is thinking. Hopefully um, this will be a better poll question than our last one. What are the donor's child support obligations? Number of options, no obligations, pay support, depends. Take a minute, read that. I'm not sure if we can answer this audience question that came in, but I'm gonna throw it out there. <clears throat> if a Canadian citizen uses gestational carrier who lives in the U.S. and the child is born in the U.S., how does the Canadian parent bring the newborn back across the border? No Canadian passport or documentation. Uh, other, the documentation can take months. So have you ever dealt with that, Shirley? Um, I have had um, U.S. citizens use a Canadian uh, surrogate and bring the child. I can tell you that before COVID, all right, um, if it were in reverse, because I've had that, then you didn't need a passport if the child was under one, okay. uh, provided you had other documentation proving that you were the parents. So um, a letter from the lawyer, a letter from the hospital, sometimes we get the parentage document, yeah. they show the statement of live birth and it's fine. And then they deal with it with the uh, US documents in the US. And Great. the other way around, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, hire a US attorney maybe. All right, let's see what our audience is thinking. Thank yeah. you for that, Cheryl. Good answer. Um, no obligation to pay support, 27%. Table amount, 6%. Depends on intent, 10%. Depends on relationship, 35 Depends on contract, 20 And other, 2%. So we're going to move into the Children's Law Reform Act. What's the answer to this question? Child support. The answer. Mm -hmm. sorry. sorry, go ahead, Shirley. No, no, sorry, Russ. I thought you were. Um, the answer is, um, if you just look at the legislation, there's no obligation. But again, if the donor's relationship with the child um, uh, reaches the level of settled intention to parent, then, then they may ultimately, if challenged, have an obligation. So it depends on the relationship between the donor and the child. Could be a little different. It's the right answer. Yeah. Okay. But it, it has, it's a pretty high level that it has to meet, right? Yeah. All right. Children's Law Reform Act, legislation from Ontario. What do we need to know, Shirley? Um, okay, so the revisions came to be in January of 2017. They revamped part one 
um, to provide for uh, family building using reproductive technology, surrogacy, egg and sperm donation, um, basically um, became sort of what uh, we're, we're wasn't is not gender specific. So if a person, not a woman, has a child, they wanted to make it very gender neutral. And um, okay, should I read this question or just keep talking? Okay, I'll just keep talking. So what's really important is that. Um, for a surrogacy. Oh, the question that came in, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll look at the questions coming in. You talk about okay. so it. I'm actually uh, the question too. We'll get to it after this. Okay. Uh, seminar. Oh, interesting. Okay. So um, important things to know. Again, section five, if you donate using assisted reproduction, you are not a parent. However, keep in mind the guidelines, settled intention to parent, uh, status of a donor can morph. That's number one. Uh, birth parent is considered a parent unless that person is a surrogate. Um, the surrogacy provisions are set out in section 10 um, for a valid surrogacy agreement. It needs to be signed pre-conception. Conception means before the embryo is implanted, um, not before created. Uh, two lawyers, one uh, to provide ILA, one obviously to draft the contract. The donor, uh, the surrogate has to wait at least seven days post-birth before she can uh, sign the required consent statutory declaration to relinquish her parentage. The intended parents sign a similar mirror form of stat deck. Those stat decks get filed with the government and then the birth can be registered in the first instance in the name of the intended parents. So a court order of declaration is not required provided those criteria are met. This is a huge difference from what uh, the norm was prior to this uh, amendment, which required every single intended parent couple of a surrogacy, uh, surrogacy born child to go to court and get a parental uh, order of declaration. So uh, section eight is also important. If you're a birth parent of a child um, conceived using assisted reproduction and you have a spouse, your spouse is considered a parent um, provided the spouse consented before conception and did not withdraw his or her consent before conception. That's important because one party in the couple can proceed with um, trying to create a, a child, you know, have a family, have a child. And if their spouse withdraws consent before um, conception uh, or doesn't consent, then that person is not considered a parent. And we've had some interesting uh, situations come up as a result of that because of the, um, the consent regulation under the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. So you can actually have a situation where one party consents to the other party using an embryo, but at the same time does not consent to be a parent. It could happen, yeah. if that makes any sense. We have US lawyers looking for help with uh, Canadian family. We'll send you our contact information at the end. We're also going to include reference to the case law that we're referring to uh, in our show notes in a follow-up email. So um, let's go into the case law. What case law do you want to identify, excuse me, in relation to the Children's Law Reform Act? What, what are your takeaways, Shirley? Okay, so the first case out of the gate um, was Justice Breyer in 2017. Um, uh, two exes uh, had sex uh, on request by the woman because she wanted children. So the ex-boyfriend obliged, 
Um, she had a child. They did not sign a donor agreement until after the child's birth. And notwithstanding their preconception intent um, that he be a donor only and the language of the contract, she sued him for child support. Uh, Justice Breyer does a really, really good job, an excellent job, actually, of going through the uh, history of the case law and ultimately decides that he is um, he is not a parent. She grants a declaration of non-parentage and therefore he has no support obligation. So the salient section there is section seven of the CLRA, which provides that if a donor um, donates using sexual intercourse, then provided there is a preconception agreement in place stating he is a donor only, then he will not be considered a parent. So again, in this particular case, there was no preconception written agreement. Justice Breyer looks at all that the, she, she reviews the totality of the evidence, uh, the texts between them, all kinds of viva voce evidence. And similar to the Genesis fertility case, she decides despite the fact that there's no written preconception agreement as the section requires, all the evidence screams that the preconception intent was that he be a donor only. And she very strongly states at the end of the case, it does not stand for the proposition that in fact, you don't need an agreement. It, it screams the opposite. If you had had an agreement, we wouldn't be here now. So abide by the legislation, get an agreement in writing, and then we don't need to worry about it. So, so you, need, you need an agreement in writing or a 10 day trial before Justice Fryer? You need an agreement in writing um, or a 10 day <laughs> trial if you're going to donate using sex and yeah. you're just a donor. Now, yes. I know we got more case law. I just want to get to a question that came in. Um, oh, wait, maybe it's, uh, let's see if I got it on my screen here. Okay, we'll get back to it. All right, let's wrap up our case law because we've got one more section we want to get into. Get into. Any more cases you want to, the audience to know? About? One more, very, very quickly, Justice okay. Zisman, uh, 2018. We knew this was going to happen. EK versus NB. Um, surprise, surprise, a couple has sex. Uh, she gets pregnant as the kid. Um, and uh, Susan for child support. And he comes back and says, no, 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 I was a donor only. Okay, no, you weren't. So that got dealt with relatively quickly. There was no evidence at all. And he got hit with the child support obligation. That's the other case. Okay, this one came in just now. Um, what if a couple does IVF while married and has remaining embryos? Then when separated, the mother gets an embryo from the clinic, impregnates herself with it, the father's consent, the child is born. What the, what's the father's child support obligation there? Okay, well, first of all, uh, I don't know who, who provided the gametes for that embryo, okay? So that's yeah. number one. I would say because yeah. of the, the fraud element, um, if I were the judge, um, I'd say no. Okay. Because it because if, if, there, were, if there was a genetic connection with both, uh, she didn't have his consent to use it, yeah. right? And if there's no genetic connection with him, then she does have the right to use it, but he didn't provide his consent under the CLRA, so he's not a parent. Got it. General application overlap with family law. So maybe one or two minutes here, and then we're going to go into uh, some Q&A. What, what do we want to, what are your takeaways on this one, Shirley? Okay, the takeaways, um, echoing what Amrit said earlier, when she does her family um, counseling intake, the takeaway number one, when you're doing your intake for your family law clients, do you have frozen embryos? eggs or sperm somewhere. Let me know where, um, what, are the what do the embryos consist of? When were they created, et cetera? So that's number one. Then there, there is um, 
that's the overlap between family and fertility law there. And then in terms of, um, you know, the child support and um, had, had, were you a donor? Is this, did you donate sperm to this child or not? If you meet with the woman, was he a donor? Was he not a donor? There's all, you know, I had one um, interesting, very interesting case in the last, I don't know, four or five years. And um, a woman had tried on her own to get pregnant. She was told in her early forties, you will never have your own child. She tried to adopt, it didn't work. She hooked up with um, an ex-boyfriend at a college reunion um, uh, who was married. Uh, they had a little tryst and I believe she was 48 and she got pregnant. And uh, that, that settled in a mediation, but you know, he was not a donor, right? And I grilled her quite, quite aggressively because it's like you tried all these things and now magically you got pregnant, but um, she was, you know, she was very credible. She was truthful. And yeah, it was a trish, she got pregnant. So lots of lessons to learn there. Um, so that's the overlap, really. It's about embryos. It's about um, it's about uh, how are the children created? And then if there is a couple who've undergone fertility treatment successfully or not, then I think it's, it's essential to pull in a family professional and try and stay out of court because the, the level of emotion in the room is gonna be absolutely huge. Great tips. Thank you for that. Look who's back. Our host, Shannon, is back. Some Q&A and bring our train into the station. Welcome back, Shannon. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Shirley and Emmerich, for uh, taking the time to share your knowledge and expertise today. Um, I know I found that very interesting, and I hope all of you enjoyed as well. Um, I know a lot of the questions were answered throughout the presentation, so thanks to everyone who sent those in. We have time for one last question here. So, um, can you withdraw your consent to use uh, to use of the embryo after you consented in the separation agreement? Yes, you can draw you can withdraw your consent at any time. The Court of Appeal is very very clear about that. That is why, in my view, providing consent in a separation agreement is it it's not durable because the consent can be withdrawn. So the takeaway is be nicey nice to your ex after the separation agreement, right, Shirley? <laughs> I, I would, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's one takeaway. The other takeaway is, um, you know, uh, put very clear in the separation agreement that, that, that the consent can be withdrawn so that you don't get sued by your client later on. <laughs> well, think of it, the spousal support releases we sign, right? We say the legislation clearly states the court can revisit it later. And Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good practice tip. Thank you, Shirley. All right, Shannon. Approaching the top of the hour. Yes, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us today and for all your participation. And of course, thank you to our speakers. It was such a pleasure having you. And we hope you all have a wonderful day. Thanks again.